if you're visiting, we welcome you. Thanks for coming night by night. So many of you have come so regularly, and we do appreciate that, and trust that God will bless us uh, even tonight. Let's turn uh, once more to Jonah uh, chapter 3. Again, working away just section by section through these verses. Again, trying to get to the end of chapter 4 by uh, tomorrow evening in the will of God. And to that end tonight, we're going to look not only at chapter 3, but also into the beginning of chapter 4. So let's read from chapter 3 uh, down into the early verse of chapter 4. Let's all uh, give careful attention to the public reading of the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the grace of them, even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way, and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent, and turn away from his fierce, fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? And therefore I fled before in Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. And therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Amen. We'll end reading there and look again to God for His blessing upon the Word. Please pray with me uh, once more that God would bless us in His presence for the Word. Again, the Word that is able to uh, reach into the very depths of our souls. That penetrating Word that comes from God that may speak to our hearts tonight again. Eternal God and Father, we thank Thee again for the time spent in Your presence this week, for the opportunity to take some time in a concentrated fashion in a regular fashion, in a short season, to consider this book in some detail. And yet we realize, O oh Lord, there, there are things that could be said that are left unsaid. And so we pray afresh tonight for direction, direction in preaching, that the words that are used and the application that is made would be according to Thy will, and it would be application that would be pointed, directed, suitable to particular souls, that there would not be a generality in this meeting as such, but rather a, a sense of a specific word from God to the hearts of all who are here. We recognize, O oh Lord, in our own experience, oftentimes in a message it's just one sentence, one word, 
that pricks and strikes home in our souls. Do that tonight, we pray. May some dear soul feel the weight of God's Word upon their hearts, that they would leave here changed, radically changed, determined to follow Christ fully. Give us grace, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Like so many of the Bible stories, they can be so well known that we lose just some of the weight and the impact of the words. I think in Jonah's case, we certainly struggle to feel the weight of chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. We've been told this, we've read this from our earliest childhood on our mother's knee. We had read the story of Jonah, and we were told again of Jonah's displeasure with God's mercy shown towards Nineveh. Verse 1 is a striking statement of the Word of God. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. What was it that displeased Jonah? The revival of chapter 3. The marvelous mercies of God in not destroying Nineveh. That's what displeased Jonah. We thought last night a little bit about the revival in Nineveh, and it could well be described as a revival. A sovereign work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit bloweth where it listeth. The sovereignty of the Spirit of God to bring about such a change in His will. You know, it's significant in later history in Nineveh when you get to Nahum's prophecy, the Word of God comes and judgment comes upon a future generation. God's mercy to Nineveh is to this generation, a particular generation in His sovereignty. Future generations in Nineveh will feel the full force of the wrath of God for their sin. It's a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. We could say it's sudden, surprising. It's a rare occasion to see such an impact in a short space of time, really across an entire city. And so in that sense, this sovereign work that is surprising also has impact upon the entire society. All sectors are moved, not just one age group or one social demographic, but in chapter 3, verse 5, it says that those who believed are from the greatest of them even to the least of them. We'll see more of that uh, later on this evening. It's a societal change impacting the entire city. These are unusual occurrences. Now, the unusual nature is not due to the Word of God being preached. That's ordinary in the things of God. It's not even due to the Spirit applying the Word. That also happens regularly. In the ones and twos, God is pleased to apply the Word by His Spirit. But here we're seeing a, an event of power in a short time with many people in a given area giving their lives in faith to the one true and living God. But one thing I haven't said about this revival tonight is that this is a saving work of God. God saves souls here. I want you to recognize that what's happening in Nineveh here is not just them enjoying some temporal deliverance from judgment. We've noticed several times in Matthew's gospel that Nineveh is used really as, as a challenge and a rebuke to the nation or the people in Jesus' day. And the language is that they shall rise in the judgment. I believe that is speaking of resurrection. 
They, they will rise in the day of general judgment, and as they rise on that day, they are rising on the side of truth. They are rising, having repented under the Word, and they bring condemnation to those who reject the gospel. They're, they're on Jesus' side on the judgment day. So what you're seeing here is not some temporal deliverance, but you're actually seeing souls who come to believe in the God of heaven, and in so doing, they are eternally redeemed by the blood of Christ. You get to Romans 3, and you understand that redemption is coming because of the future coming of Christ to shed His blood on their behalf. As the man sang, it's the blood of Christ that avails for their souls. But these eventually, they're, they're seen as blood-washed sinners. Gentiles, foreigners, strangers by nature from the covenants of promise, but now redeemed by God's grace. We long, we ought to long to see souls saved, to see one soul saved, to see a multitude saved. We, we long to see revival. What a joy and what a delight that would bring to our souls. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Been describing this saving work of God. God comes in sovereign power, and yet it displeased Jonah exceedingly. How, how is this possible? How can it be that he feels this way and thinks this way? Surely you'd be delighted. You, you can you imagine any of our missionaries coming and saying that we, we went to this city or that city, and the entire city, from the governor down, they, they all came to profess faith in God? Can you imagine that account? And yet that same missionary standing there and saying, but I wasn't very happy about it. This is striking. It should cause us to question, what is going on here? I can speak of my own ministry. I'd be thrilled if one or two souls in a local area sought Christ this year. But am I better than Jonah? Is that so obvious that really Jonah's got a major problem and Realize, just look at myself and say, oh, I'm not like Jonah. Well, I suspect we're more like Jonah than we think. Jonah has a problem here. He has trouble understanding the marvelous mercies of God, and his response is indeed perplexing. But before we get to chapter 4, I need to fill in some blanks. So to get to chapter 4, we have to think about the preceding context in chapter 3 in some more detail and what I want to do tonight is I want to look at this in terms of three separate responses. You see, what you're seeing in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is really a series of events, one response leading to another. And I think if you look at it that way, I think all the pieces will fit together. See, first of all, you've, you've got to examine the Ninevites' response to the Word of God. I've been very general so far, so let's look at that in some more detail. And then you look at the Lord's response to the Ninevites' repentance. That's the end of chapter 3. So the Ninevites' response to God's Word, the Lord's response to their repentance, and then, only then, can you see Jonah's response to the Lord's response of repenting. So we're going to do that. We're going to take our time working one way through the other, one response after another. So let's, first of all, let's look closely at the Ninevites' response to God's Word. And that's chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. And you see it uh, given here, the words, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed the fast and put on sackcloth. That's the summary statement. What they do here, that's summarized in that opening section of verse number 5. Note, first of all, their confidence. Verse 5, they believed 
God. That, again, for a preacher, is what we pray for. I don't want anybody to leave here saying, I believe that preacher. You want people to leave the meeting like this saying, I believe God. Not because a preacher has some delusion of grandeur, but because a preacher understands that their duty and their responsibility is not to utter their own words, but it is to repeat the Word of God. As we said last night, the only hope of revival is in men giving themselves to the preaching of God's Word, not to novelties, not to gimmicks, not to entertaining schemes, but to thunder the Word of God and say, Thus saith the Lord. So that the response of those who hear is to say, I believe in God. That they come to the conviction that God has spoken to their hearts. Isn't that what happens to the Thessalonians? When they received the word of God, which they heard of the apostles, they received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And so these Ninevites, they hear the words of Jonah, the mouthpiece of God, and they believe God's word about their sin. Jonah's preaching at this point is is very much law-based. No preacher should preach law without gospel. I think that's part of Jonah's problem, by the way, and we'll see that perhaps later on. But having said that, he's preaching law, and God used the preach of the law to bring people to confront their own sin. We're something's fearful today. We're a very politically correct culture nowadays, and we don't like to point out people's sinfulness. We're fearful to mention one sin or another sin for fear that we might meet disapproval. Sometimes, you know, it's easy to preach on some sins. You get the amens in the congregation and leave others aside. We're guilty of that sometimes. But here we see Jonah preaching and the people believe the word regarding sin. I want again just to draw your attention to one important detail here. I've said several times that the book of Jonah is given as a word to the Old Testament people of God. And here I want to turn you back to Amos chapter 7. Because when it says the people of Nineveh believed God, that stands in contradiction to the response of God's people to the word of God. I just want you to understand where this fits in in terms of Bible history. And I think it will help us to see the really the remarkable belief that these people had in the word of Jonah. You see, in Amos chapter 7, we see Amos as a contemporary of Jonah. Not necessarily uh, straddling each other side by side, but certainly you see in Amos chapter 7, verse number 10, then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel. Remember 2 Kings 14, Jonah's preaching in Jeroboam's reign. His first word from God is in that reign. And now we find Amos at the same sort of time, and he's bringing a word from God. And what does Amaziah say? Amos hath conspired against thee. In the midst of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Amos comes to Israel and says, like Jonah says, yet forty days and Israel shall be overthrown. Not quite but a similar message of judgment warning the people of God about their sin. And what's the response? Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go 
flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy here, but don't prophesy here any more. There's a rejection of the Word of God by the people of God. And Jonah goes to Nineveh, and they don't say to Jonah, go away. They say, you're God's mouthpiece, and they believe God. And in so doing, God is provoking the people of Israel to jealousy, the jealousy that Jonah struggles with. And you get into chapter 4, as God shows mercy to the Ninevites. What is it that makes the difference between the Israelites rejecting Amos and the Ninevites believing in Jonah? What makes a difference? Nothing in the Ninevites. It's only the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We are living now in days like Amos confronted. More and more the believers into the public square and they're said, go away, don't prophesy here. Don't speak the word here. We don't hear that anymore. Go and do it somewhere else, but not here. We don't want to hear the word of God. Do you know, things can change. By the work of the Spirit of God, God is able to change things. Keep on preaching, keep on praying. The Ninevites believe God. That's their confidence. Notice, secondly, their contrition. Their contrition is seen in these outward displays. Again, I don't tend to go into detail on this, but fasting, that denoted an affliction of self and humiliation before God. You, again, you can trace that all the way through the Old Testament. To fast was to afflict yourself and really to confess your abject poverty before God, that you weren't worthy of any of God's blessings. That's the fasting side of things. The sackcloth, again, had that sense of additional sorrow and mourning. And this is, this is conviction and contrition for sin. Now, again, as we look at this, I want to take the opportunity to think about how some of the skeptics assess the Ninevites' response here. People don't like to see such radical conviction of sin. And so they will pour water upon the spiritual fire here. And the, the first thing they may say is, this was coerced. And they look at chapter 3, verse number 6. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh. He gets off his throne, he lays his robe, and he calls it to be reclaimed and published, verse 7, by the decree of the kings and nobles, and he gives instructions regarding what should happen in the humiliation and the contrition of the people for their sins. Now, the king mentioned here is, is likely a regional governor, not so much the king of Assyria as a nation, but the governor of Nineveh, given this title, the king of, of Nineveh. It's certainly fascinating to see a, a civil ruler encouraging such widespread repentance. Over in the States, if you, if you say that, you stir up good interest. Uh, the subject of the issue of church and state and how they interact with each other always causes, uh, always causes great fascination. Uh, the state in the Word of God carries the sword. The church carries the Word. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible to mandate the state enforcing belief in God. Having said that, wouldn't it be nice if God would move in such power upon our authorities that they would recommend and encourage people to trust in God. 
Isn't that what 1 Timothy 2 is about? At least in part, praying for kings and those in authorities that, that we have the freedom to preach Christ, the one and only mediator between God and man. But the point of Jonah chapter 3 is, is not to look at the people's contrition and say, well, they're, they're clearly doing this as those who are coerced and compelled by the state. That's not the point because verse 6 and following doesn't it doesn't explain, if you like, why the people repent. Rather, it explains verse 5 in the last part that what's happening here is that God has worked in such a way that He's impacted the greats of them, even to the least of them. So the people believe God, verse 5, but such is the widespread nature of this contrition for sin that even the very governor has had the same impact of God in their souls. And we can definitely pray for that. That are going to move in the hearts of those in the highest levels of authority in our land. That they be so moved of God to believe the word of God and repent of their sins. To throw off all of their regal legalia and get before God in humble prayer. We can pray for that. And we can ask for God to do that for the glory of His name. But don't read those words and thereby so question the belief of the people of God. God had changed their hearts. Secondly, others would say this contrition is out of self-interest. I would say, well, of course, they're, they're really just making sure what if Jonah is true? What if in 40 days... No harm, 40 days, not that long. Let's just take some time in humility, and if the judgment passes, so be it, all is well, and then we'll get back on to our own merry ways. But again, when you read verse 9, they actually don't presume that their repentance will have any impact. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? They are not assuming that their actions before God will indeed bring about the alleviation of God's warnings and judgments. So it's not out of self-interest. But you know, even if that was the case, there's no harm in that. It's a foolish man who won't flee from fire because someone will say, you're just trying to save your life. God does warn us of the coming wrath. We should flee from the wrath to come and act in self-interest. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Dear unsaved soul, run for your life to Christ tonight. Other people question, what about the animals? You're looking at Ninevites as if they're you know, believers in Jesus Christ, and yet there's all manner of strange things here. They're, they're talking about their animals being clothed sackcloth, and they can't feed or drink water. What about the animals? Don't really know. I'm not sure about these animals. It's even more perplexing because you get to the end of chapter, uh, chapter 4, the very last word in the book is the cattle. Well, maybe it comes up tomorrow night in some detail. Hard to know for certain what's happening to the animals here. If they are somewhat confused, then isn't it wonderful that God accepts less than perfect repentance? If there is still some confusion or thinking, yet God is still in His mercy able to accept and see the genuineness of the repentance? Or it may well be the case more likely that God's judgment was upon the entire city and they understood that really everything had to buy into this need to call upon God. It may even be a foreshadowing 
of the creation groaning for the redemption of the sons of God in Romans chapter 8? Maybe. Hard to be certain. But having thought of all that, whatever the case is, we do see that these people hear the Word of God and they respond in confidence and in contrition. That leads then to secession, verse number 8. They stop their evil ways. Again, that's the instruction of the king. Let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. You see, the king understands that true repentance involves stopping sin. That you cannot be sorry for your sin and yet still live in that sin. That's always the case when there is true confession of sin and true contrition for sin. There's secession from that sin. Say we're sorry for sin. Say we hate sin and yet continue in sin. That doesn't make any sense. And yet somehow that's tolerated in the wider church. Now, I understand Romans 7. I understand remaining sin is very, very powerful. But at times, people continue in their sin because they haven't seen their sin as against God. Pardon from an offended God. They haven't seen their sin in light of God's law, and they haven't come to hate their sin. You see, those who have come to know their sin and hate their sin, the last thing they want to do is continue in that sin. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing genuine repentance here. You see, from this, these Ninevites look to God for mercy. Clearly, humility comes to the fore. Earnestness comes. Look what it says in verse number 8. They cry mightily unto God. It doesn't mean that the more we cry, the more God hears, but it does indicate their earnestness in their appeal. They're crying mightily unto God. And that happens. When sinners are confronted with their sins, they understand they need nothing else but God's marvelous mercies. I fear that some of you are in this room at this very moment, and the judgment day may come, and the Ninevites will rise in judgment, and you will be rebuked by the Ninevites' repentance. You continue in your sin, but you don't care. You dishonor God, you take His name in vain, you violate His holy day, you dishonor your parents, you're impure in your mind and your thoughts and your heart, you live a life of covetousness, idolatry, materialism, you continue in your sin, but you do not care. You've heard God's Word thunder from this pulpit over the years, and yet you still do not care. And the Ninevites will rise in the judgment and say, you lived after the days of one greater than Jonas, and you heard him preaching through God's servants in this pulpit. You heard him preach for years and years and years. Christ came and preached peace to you that were far off, and you discerned in your heart, I'm going to continue in my sin. I don't care what God says. You're like those in Amos's day. Go away. And the Ninevites will judge you. You know of the warnings of hell, but you will not believe those warnings. And more than this, you have more light than the Ninevites. You see, you look at verse number 9 of chapter 3, and you realize they say, who can tell? You have no need to say, who can tell? You're living this side of Calvary. 
You've heard the gospel promises that assure you of God's favorable response. I tell you, if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you need not doubt God's mercy. You have no need to humble yourself in sackcloth and ashes, as it were, and live a time of weeks and weeks of penance, like Luther climbing the steps in Rome in the hope that he might get mercy with God. No, you have the gospel promises uttered from this pulpit week after week after week that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord not might be saved, but shall be saved. You have those promises. And you don't need to say, who can tell? You can say, I can tell, and I know that God will pardon me. Because Christ has died, and God is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You have the assurance of the gospel promises that if you come to God, He will not turn you away. He will not say, I have no mercy for you. If you come to Christ tonight, He has mercy for you. There's mercy with the Lord. And it's for you tonight, dear sinner. You do not need to allow the Ninevites to rise in judgment against you. There's mercy with the Lord. That's the response of these Ninevites to the Word of God, which obviously leads, secondly then, to the Lord's response to their repentance. Given what we've seen so far, we, we, we kind of expect verse number 10 in our minds. Maybe not the language, but certainly the sentiments here. Because we've seen... We've seen so much of God's marvelous mercies. We've seen God's mercy in graciously sending His servant. I would say graciously and determinedly. Jonah runs one way. God sends a storm and a wind and a fish. He spits him out upon the sea. Jonah goes a second time to Nineveh. God has determined to show His grace to the Ninevites by sending the prophet. That's God's grace. God has graciously spoken through His servant God's word of warning has come to them. They're not left in darkness or ignorance. They're told, this amount of time, and God will punish the city. They know these things. God has graciously applied the word. They've come to believe the word. Therefore, if God is the mover of this story, and He is, we're not surprised in verse number 10 where it says, God saw their works. Jonah knew what to expect. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says that he knew that God was going to be gracious to them. But that doesn't mean there are no difficulties to consider. Listen to the words again, verse number 10. And God saw their works, they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. And he did it not. Two things. God judges their response and deems it genuine. The Lord looks at their works and believes in His infallible, omniscient wisdom that their repentance is genuine. It brings rebuke to Israel for their unwillingness to repent. It moves them to jealousy, but God judges their repentance and then pardons them. God alone can judge our hearts. You know, we all live with the battle of doubt and unbelief. The devil, you call yourself a Christian. You perhaps look back at your conversion and you think to yourself, well, 
Was that really repentance? And the devil comes and says to your mind, you call that repentance? That doesn't look like repentance to me. And then even in your own heart, you, you have the same accusation thoughts. You go, did I, did I really turn from my sin to God? Am I really a child of God? You know, where do you turn? You turn to God. I love the account when Peter comes back and is restored to service in the Lord, and the Lord questions him those three times, lovest thou me? And he comes at the end and says, Lord, you're omniscient. You're the Lord God. You know all things. You know my heart. You know that I love thee. You know, dear child of God, God alone can judge your heart. Not your neighbor, not the devil. God judges your heart. He does that here for the Ninevites. And then he repents of the judgment that is threatened. God repents of the judgment. So it says, God repented of the evil. Now, we can't skip past this. The word evil here, please understand when it says God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. That word evil is not always used in our Old Testament in the same way that we use the word evil. It does not always denote moral evil. It's a general word that can denote things that are bad or adverse or things like judgment like this. It's not a word that God is planning mortal evil against the Ninevites. But the greater question, of course, is how can God be said to repent? What about God's immutability? God is unchangeable. God is of infinite perfection that He cannot change. Nothing can be added to God. Nothing can be taken from God. He is the unchangeable God. He is immutable. How can God be said to repent? And beyond that, we also know in God's Word that God's eternal decree is unchangeable. Again, as it is a perfect eternal decree. How does God repent? It gets even more confusing when you read a verse like Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make good? Wait a minute. Numbers is just telling us God is not a man that he should repent. But God repented of the evil, verse number 10. Furthermore, 1 Samuel 15, verse 29 says this, The strength of Israel will not lie nor repent. He is not a man that he should repent. We've now got two witnesses to this fact. The Bible tells us God will not repent. How do we deal with this? Well, we should understand that the context of those two passages, Numbers 23 and 1 Samuel 15, are referring to God's covenantal redemptive promises. God has made covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then to David, that a king should sit upon his throne, and God, having made those redemptive purposes, will not fail to keep those purposes. He is not a man who makes a promise and then revokes that promise. He's not a man who makes a promise and then fails to make good upon his word. God is not a man who repents of his covenantal promises. But the warnings to Nineveh are not of the same order. The warnings from God of judgment are genuine and they are aimed at provoking a response. Right, folks, I know it's a, it's a Thursday night. We've been here all week, going night by night through this. It's now about nine o'clock or thereabouts. It's warm. You need to kind of give yourself a shake and think this through. 
Because if you think this through, I guarantee you the encouragement is immense. All that takes place in Jonah is according to God's unchanging plan and purpose. Nothing in Jonah is a surprise to God. He has foreordained the end from the beginning. God's eternal will, therefore, is the Ninevites' repentance. But God's eternal will included the warnings as part of how that will is accomplished. The warnings are genuine as God accomplishes His eternal will. One man says this, Belief in God's immutability does not negate the importance of human contingencies or especially the importance of human choices under the sovereign control of God. Please listen. Under the sovereign control of God, the choices people make determine the directions history will take. Choices matter. We believe in human free will. Men make choices out of their own will, but the will that they have is governed by their nature, and thus their will is bound by their nature, and they will make those choices that are according to their nature. Those who are sinful and depraved make those choices, but those who are born again of the Spirit of God make different choices, but the choices matter under the sovereign direction of God's. And so what you have in chapter 3, verse 10, is what we term an anthropomorphism. Two words, man and form. It is God speaking to us in language that we understand. God's hands. He has no body, but we understand in His hands He works. His eyes. He has no eyes, but we understand through His eyes He sees. God cannot repent in that sense. But he takes language that we understand so that you, dear child of God, and you, dear sinner tonight, would understand that God's warnings are genuine. The change is in man and not in God. And the unchanging, marvelous mercies of God will receive the humble penitent. There is a day of wrath to come. Christ will come and his wrath will be poured out. He will come in flaming fire, and he will take vengeance upon all those who know not God and that obey not the gospel. That's a genuine warning to your soul tonight, dear unsaved soul. Right now, the wrath of God abides upon you through your unbelief. And the wrath of God will eventually be poured out upon this world. That warning comes to you. And right now, God says to you, If you will not repent, then that wrath will be your end. But if you repent, there's mercy with the Lord. If you repent, God will then, if you like, repent of the evil that He warns you of. You're on your way to hell. You're on your way to lost eternity. You're like those in Ephesians chapter 2, the children of wrath. God's wrath abides upon you. But if you repent, there's mercy with the Lord. And God, in His grace and His kindness, will not do to you as He warns He will do if you will not seek the Lord. We can tell this to our friends and family. We can tell this to our neighbors. 
that the wrath of God is coming, but our God is of such mercy that He will not turn any who repent of their sins. You know, there are some out there genuinely, and they do not take God's mercy for granted. They they lose sleep at night because of conviction of sin. They're very aware that they've sinned against the Holy God. They know the weight of their own depravity. They feel that, and they think to themselves, there's no mercy for me. Oh, we need to go alongside them. I want you to take them, Jonah chapter 3, and say, look at the book. This is the God of heaven. And if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, there's mercy with the Lord. You need to preach this stuff to your families your neighbors. As the weight of God's law comes upon them, we point them to Calvary and say, there, there's God's mercy, the unchanging God of marvelous mercies. Which leads in the third place then, the surprising response of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What a contrast. And the contrast is meant to be seen, verse number 10, God saw and relented or repented. Jonah saw and was displeased. Jonah is clearly in the wrong here. There's no doubt about that, no need to conjecture there. Christ highlights Nineveh's repentance positively. I've said that already. Christ himself puts this rubber stamp of God upon the repentance. So we find Jonah here in chapter 4 in an argument with God. His heart is not in the right place. He's got spiritual heart disease. He's angry and displeased with the God of heaven. He disapproves of God's grace. How is that possible? Well, before we answer that and before we judge ourselves better than Jonah, I think we should wait and see. And I believe we'll see in... Jonah seeds of this very same sins in our own hearts. Not the exact replica, but we'll see the very same issues. So also worth knowing that we look at this from a New Testament perspective. We, we see God's grace to Gentiles in the New Testament. It's not so clear in Jonah's day. It's clear, but it's not as clear as after the day of Pentecost. Jonah, even by some, could be commended a keen sense of justice. These people are wicked. Their wickedness has come before God. Surely if God is just, He'll bring judgment upon this people. Jonah's got a burden for God's name. He should be vindicated. His name should be hallowed. And here's a people who deserve to come under the wrath of God for the glory of God. So we can begin to see something that may be going on in Jonah's heart. But we cannot look past a proud heart that believed he had the right to determine who God showed grace toward. I want to, as we close tonight, very quickly highlight five symptoms of spiritual heart disease in Jonah. The first one is in unguarded pride. I think the 40 days pass by in chapter 4 and Jonah's worst fears are realized. And when he sees that God has indeed repented of the evil, self comes to the fore. Jonah's reactions recounted in verse 1, displeased God, revealed in prayer, verses 2 and 3, and then responded to by God, verse 4, doest thou well to be angry. 
But I want to draw your attention to the words in verse number one because the words here are very, very interesting. We lose them a little bit again in our English Bibles. Because in verse one, in the first part, the, the phrasing used here uses the very same root verb as for evil in chapter three, verse 10. Same word. They turned from their evil way. God repented of the evil. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, you have the same word for evil along with the adjective for great. And what you could say is, it says this, it seemed very evil to Jonah. The Ninevites, their evil way. God repenting of judgment. Two, same words, evil, evil, and now Jonah it seemed very evil to Jonah. What does God's relenting does? And Jonah is more angry with their deliverance in his own mind than God was at their sin. The word great or exceedingly that's used here in Jonah chapter 4 is only used of Jonah's attitude here. It's not used even of God's anger against the people for their wickedness. And so it's Jonah saying, I know better than God's. I'm better equipped to understand this circumstance than God is. It's unbelievable. But it's here. And so in verse 2, he says, basically, I knew it. That's why I ran. I knew you'd do this, Lord. I knew that's what was going to happen. And so what you see here is that Jonah wants his will, not God's will. Now, I'm not suggesting any of us are just like Jonah here. But I suspect most of us at some point have in the darkness of our thoughts against God said to God, you shouldn't do it this way. Jonah's argument here is with the will of God. It is God's will that the Ninevites repent. And he's simply saying, God, you shouldn't do that. It was an evil thing in the sight of Jonah. It's like Peter, who takes the Lord aside and says, Be it far from thee, Lord. Not this way. You see, the true believer will submit to God's will. They'll submit to God's will and how God saves through Christ and through the preaching of the Word. The believer submits in who he saves. He understands it is of God to show mercy. Salvation is of the Lord. But the true believer also submits to God in how God works to sanctify. We can get angry with God's will in providence. Some disease comes upon us, or a loved one. The death of someone in our lives close to us. Some tragedy, some circumstance and we get before God and say, God, it shouldn't be this way. We all struggle to submit to God's providential will. That's just the same sin that Jonah had in his heart. God, you know what's best, but I know better. There's unguarded pride here. There's also ungrateful selfishness and we'll develop this more tomorrow night going forward to the end of the chapter. But you see in Jonah a selfishness here and an ingratitude. He's happy to receive God's grace, but not willing for others to receive it. 
He's happy that he receives mercy, but does not want others to receive that same mercy. You ever struggle with that one? You're happy to say, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. But don't let that sinner be saved by grace, especially the one that sinned against me. Again, our, our time has gone so fast. You go to the gospel records and read some of the parables. How many times shall I forgive? Seven times, seventy. And the story is told, again, the, the debtor, and he's released of a, a tremendous debt, and then there's somebody else who owes him a few pennies, and he goes and catches him by the throat. He's happy to receive forgiveness and mercy, but he's not so keen to show it to others. We're not that unlike Jonah, are we? Yeah, I, I, yeah. You can object all you like. And if it's not true for you, fine. But I've certainly wrestled with it. Am I willing to forgive those who have sinned against me? Do I desire that they would know the mercy I've enjoyed? There is this ungrateful selfishness. There's also clearly an unloving sectarianism here. It's a good part of Jonah's issue. Again, that is part of God's purpose to provoke Israel to jealousy, to expose their hearts that they'll reject God and expect no consequence. But when others receive the gospel, they then become jealous of that circumstance. And there is a sectarianism here that Jonah, he's a, he's a proud Israelite. And it's okay for God to bless Israel, but don't bless those outside Israel. You see, in Christ's ministry, the issue of love for neighbor arose. And the Lord tells the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans are our neighbors. And we should be a neighbor. We should love our neighbors ourselves. Jonah could argue that his attitude was honoring to God. But he struggled to delight that his neighbor would, show the, would know the mercy of God. He had a dislike for Ninevites. We're not immune to this, are we? Certain people, certain communities, certain sins. You know, we, we have some we have some really, really wicked politicians in the in the USA. They advance all manner of wicked schemes, determining to go against the word of God. Somebody's challenge our people, can you pray for their salvation? Would you desire that they would know the marvelous mercies of God? I'm not going to apply it directly to people in situations in this country. You can do that in your own time. Do we really believe in the whosoever? Oh, I'm, I'm a Calvinist, that's the elect. Yeah. But it's the elect from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. It's those from all the nations of the world who in God's kind providence are coming to your doorsteps. You don't need to go very far now to bring the gospel to the nations. God's marvelous mercies to our neighbors. There's fourthly, I believe, an ungodly supplication here. And again, this we'll have to come back to in more detail. But look at verse 2 and 3. We see a prayer here. You might say, is it always right to pray? It's always right to pray, but our prayers are not always right. 
You might say, well, Jonah's submissive here. Lord, I beseech thee, take my life from me. Verse 3, there's a submission to his will. Beyond that, he uses Scripture in verse 3. He refers to Exodus chapter 34. The interesting thing, when he quotes Exodus 34, there are those who point out that he misses out the end of the section there. Because in Exodus 34, as the Lord highlights His mercies and grace, the next verse says, "...keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but also visiting the iniquity of fathers upon the children." and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. And there are those who suggest that Jonah is deliberately misusing Scripture, suggesting that God has forgotten to visit iniquity. And I don't know for certain, but I do know it is very possible for us to pray and misuse the Word of God. To take a Bible verse, make it our own agenda, and misapply that in prayer, and leave our prayers presuming we've prayed the will of God. But truth be told, we've prayed our own will. I love the hymn. It's a prayer. I want, dear Lord, a heart that's true and clean, a sunlit heart with not a cloud between, a heart like thine. Heart as white as snow on me, dear Lord, a heart like this bestow. I want to think God's thoughts after him. It's a struggle for Jonah. The fifth thing is uncontrolled emotions. Verse 4, doest thy well to be angry. I know you can be angry and sin not, Ephesians 4. But at the same time, Ephesians 4, 31 says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger be put away from you. Anger is such a dangerous emotion. It's very, very, very difficult to be angry and not sin. And here we see Jonah's emotions are governing his actions. His mind should govern his emotions. He should be governed in his thinking about the mercies of God. But he allows his emotions to run riot in his heart. Spiritual heart disease. Not unlike ours in so, so many ways. We need God's grace. And if you find yourself wrestling with some of these spiritual heart disease symptoms I do the obvious thing, I tell you. Take a walk to Calvary afresh. Remind yourself there of the marvelous mercies of God who sent His Son and plunged His Son into the darkness of His wrath that whosoever would call upon the Lord would be saved. I would trust and pray tonight if you're in this meeting and you don't know the Lord, you feel something of the weight of your sin, and you've seen something of God's mercy in giving grace to the repentant sinner, I would hope that when you called upon the Lord, those around you would rejoice in your salvation. Not despise it, not doubt it, but delight that as God had shown mercy to me, so God shows mercy to you. We have a glorious God. Let's make sure the people around us Come to know that God is rich in mercy. Let's again close our meeting in prayer. Again, we've covered a lot of ground and various issues tonight. It may well be there's something that's just troubled your soul. 
us in the quietness now, I'd ask you just to shut out every distraction. If God's dealt with you in some way tonight, just make sure you do business with God right now. Ask Him to show you your sin further. Ask Him to give you the comfort of knowing that He's kind and willing to forgive. Perhaps you have a bitter heart or an angry heart towards a friend or a neighbor or someone in the family. Ask God to soften your anger and that they would know the mercies of God as well. Eternal God, take your word. Apply the the breadth of your word to particular souls. Spirit of God, do the afterwork from the sermon. That people would leave this gathering now determined to get before thee, to seek to determine your will, and to live with a heart like thine. Grant us the help of the Spirit. We thank you again for your kindness to us tonight. Take us home in safety. May we walk in your fear. In Jesus' name, amen.